Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky. Over our last few classes, we've been looking at the unit of blessings and curses in Vayikra chapter 26, delving into several theological questions that arose along the way. We asked, why do the verses not mention the spiritual rewards of the next world? And how do we understand the concept of sevenfold punishment in which it seems that Hashem punishes disproportionately to one's crimes? The verses that we'll look at today, verses 36 through 46, will raise yet another theological question. Does repentance always bring forgiveness in its wake? Or is it possible that repentance may be rejected? We left off last class in the middle of the last unit of curses, those that foretold the exile of the nation and the desolation of the lands. We looked at the first half of these verses, which focused on the destruction of the lands. The second half, which we'll, which we'll turn to right now, moves into a description of the nation in exile and how they fare among enemy nations. So starting with verse 36. As for those of you who are left, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf will put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they will fall, though no one pursues. These verses describe how life in exile is a life filled with anxiety. Since life is so uncertain, and the Jews' position so precarious, with fickle rulers and anti-Semitism all around, even when there is no real cause for concern, people will think that there is. Fleeing even when no one is chasing, running away from even innocent sounds such as the rustling of leaves. The Midrash Yakut Shimoni tells a story connected to our verse. It describes how several sages were sitting under a tree. A wind came and the leaves rustled. The sages panicked, thinking that they heard the sounds of oncoming horses, and they ran away in fright. After a while, they looked back, only to realize that no one was behind them. No one was chasing them. They sat and cried, Oy lanu, nitkayim aleinu mikrasha katuv batorah, v'radaf otam kol ale nidaf. Woe is to us that what is written in the verse and the sound of a driven leaf will put them to flight has been fulfilled. The next verse describes how in the people's rush to flee, they will stumble over one another. Verse 37. They will stumble over one another as if before the sword, when no one pursues, and you will have no power to stand before your enemies. When fleeing from danger, one pays attention only to saving oneself, oblivious to all that is in one's path. And so our verses share that people will stumble and fall atop one another even when there's only perceived danger. The Midrash picks up on the language of v'chashlu ish be'achiv, noting that the more common phraseology would have been ish mikne achiv. It suggests that the verse is hinting that each will stumble ba'avon achiv, due to the sins of the other. Since all of the nation is responsible for one another, even innocents will sometimes suffer for the sins of their brethren. This too is part of the curse. The verse ends, literally, that you won't be able to stand before your enemies. 
Rav Hirsch explains what this means. In exile, we will live among people who not only hate us, but who degrade us, who take away our civil rights and remove our dignity. And we ourselves will have neither sufficient self-respect nor enough courage to stand up tall before them and demand what is rightfully ours. Anyone who thinks back over the history of Am Yisrael in exile recognizes how true this description is. The next verse goes a step further. Verse 38. You will perish among the nations and the land of your enemies will eat you up. The meaning of the word vavadetem in our verse is ambiguous. It can mean to be destroyed or devastated, in which case our verse is speaking of enemy persecutions and killings. Alternatively, it might mean to be lost, in which case the verse is telling us that the people will be dispersed in their lands of exile, lost from one another. Finally, the word can also take on the meaning to wander, and if so, the verse is warning that even after the initial exile, people will be continually kicked out of their lands of residence and forced to wander further. This too is only too true throughout Jewish history. Though already in exile from Israel, Jews have been expelled from their countries of exile again and again. We were exiled from England in 1390, from Spain in 1492, and from Portugal in 1497. We've been forced to flee and kicked out of our homes due to pogroms in Russia, attacks in Arab lands, and from the Nazis in Eastern Europe. The second half of the verse, and the land of your enemies will eat you up, has been understood somewhat literally, that the foreign land itself will cause deaths. The people will not be used to the new climate, their bodies will not have built up resistance to the germs and diseases, and so many will die of illness. Verse 39. Those of you who are left will pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away. Even after all the destruction described, Hashem warns that even those who remain behind will once again be struck and punished for their sins and also the sins of their forefathers. Verse 40 then brings a shift in tone. After all this punishment, we are told that finally the people will confess their sins. They will confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their trespass which they trespass against me, and also that because they walked contrary to me. At first glance, at least, it seems that our verse is about to introduce a change in fortune. After all, the people have just confessed their sins. Yet, when we read the next few verses, we find that we are mistaken. Verse 41. I also will walk contrary unto them and bring them into the land of their enemies, if then perchance their uncircumcised heart be humbled, and they then be paid then punishment for their iniquities. Surprisingly, Hashem's reaction to the nation's apparent confession is not forgiveness but redoubled punishment. He tells us once again that he will walk contrary to the nation and bring them to the land of their enemies, 
with the hope that maybe then they will finally repent. How should this response be understood? Does Hashem really reject sincere repentance? In the next verse, Hashem shares, V'zacharti ebriti Yaakov, v'af ebriti Yitzchak, v'af ebriti Avraham eskor, v'ha'aretz eskor. Then I will remember my covenant with Yaakov, and also my covenant with Yitzchak, and also my covenant with Avraham, and I will remember the land. Once again, it sounds as if perhaps there will be a change of fortune. Hashem says that he will remember his covenant, presumably to forgive and have mercy. But he then continues, For the land shall lie forsaken without them, and shall be paid her Sabbaths while she lie desolate without them. And they shall be paid the punishment of their iniquity, because they rejected my ordinances, and their soul abhorred my statutes. Apparently then, despite remembering his covenant with the forefathers, Hashem still means to punish the people, promising that the land will lie barren as the people pay for their sins and for the rejecting of Hashem's mitzvot. And again we ask, how are we to understand the sequence of events? If Hashem is remembering the covenant, why does punishment follow? How are we to understand all of these verses? Why, if the people repent in exile, does Hashem not accept their repentance? Why do they keep getting punished again and again? Interestingly, this phenomenon of rejected repentance is actually not unique to our verses. Later in Sefer Dvarim, where there is a similar list of blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience, Hashem also describes how in the midst of their suffering, the people will finally turn back to God and admit that their suffering has been brought upon them due to their turning away from Hashem. They will say, Hello, Alki'in Elokai Birkebi Mitzauni Hara'ot. All this has befallen me because Hashem is not within me. There too, though, instead of Hashem forgiving the nation, we are told, I will surely hide my face on that day for all the evil which they have worked. Instead of forgiveness, here too the people get punished. And so we ask again, are not confession and repentance supposed to bring atonement in their wake? As we read later in Devarim 30, And you will return to your God and heed his voice, that then Hashem, your God, will return you from captivity and have compassion on you. How can our verses be reconciled with this verse, which clearly states that when we return to God, he will return to us, that he will have compassion on us and return us from captivity? Why in our verses does Hashem not do the same, but instead seemingly rejects the nation's repentance and instead of forgiving them mercifully, slaps them in the face with further punishment? Let's survey some of the approaches to our question. Many commentators assume that it's not possible that Hashem would refuse to accept sincere repentance. And so they resolve the theological problem by reinterpreting either the description of the nation's confession suggesting that it was somehow lacking, or by reinterpreting Hashem's punishment, suggesting that though at first glance the verses appeared to speak of a punishment, in reality they do not. We'll start with those who take the first of these two variations, assuming that the verses must be speaking of an inadequate confession, 
or incomplete repentance. Those who take this approach reinterpret the verse which states, Bidvadu et avonam, that the people confess their sins, attempting to show how, despite these words, there really was no meaningful confession. Rav David Tzvi Hoffman asserts that the word vidvadu does not mean and they will confess, but rather and they shall confess. Our opinion is that the word vidvadu is a command. Hashem cries out to those who are willing to accept rebuke, confess. As such, the verse is not a description of what the people will do, but only a divine prescription of what they should do, and it says nothing about their actual repentance. Ramban agrees that the verse should be reinterpreted, but in a different way. He suggests that the verse really does speak of a past confession and not a command to confess, but suggests that the confession was insufficient. Though the people recognized and admitted to their sins, this was not accompanied by a change of ways. Ramban notes that words without actions are meaningless, and so despite their confession, the people were deserving of more punishment. And therefore, Hashem says, I will bring them into the land of their enemies. Ramban understands this punishment to mean that though Hashem will indeed bring the people back to Israel, they will return only to find that the land will still be controlled by their enemies. Abarbanel offers a third rereading, suggesting that the confession of the verse is limited because it was said by only part of the nation. He assumes that the curses of our verse came true at the end of the first temple period when the nation was exiled to Babylonia. While in exile, the leaders such as Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they repented, but the lay people did not. As such, Hashem threatens that if they continue to sin, the people would be dispersed to even further lands. Ramban and Abarbanel's differing understanding of the phrase and what this further punishment constitutes, either being exiled yet again or returning to an Israel ruled over by foreigners, might be influenced by their personal backgrounds. Abarbanel lived through multiple expulsions, and so he understands Hashem is saying that insufficient repentance leads one to be exiled once and once again. Ramban instead experienced what it was like to return to Israel while it was still under foreign rule. At the end of his life, he made it to Eret Yisrael, but in Israel who was not ruled over by Am Yisrael, and so he reads that back into the verses. These sources explain the passage in Zvarim in a similar fashion, suggesting that when the people there say, Hello al-ki'in elokai b'kirbi mitza'uni hara'ot, haven't these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, that these words too do not constitute sincere repentance. Ramban suggests that this verse, like the one in Vayikra, refers to only a partial repentance, recognition of wrongdoing without a full correction thereof, words unaccompanied by a change of behavior. According to Sforno in contrast, the people's statement is not a confession of wrongdoing at all, but rather merely a recognition that Hashem is not with them. In fact, this feeling that Hashem had abandoned them precluded them from even trying to repent. 
Shaddal goes even further to suggest that the nation's words are not only lacking in a, in a sincere confession, but actually constitute a complaint. They're not justifying their punishment, but complaining and accusing God or forsaking them. These rereadings of the verses easily solve our theological problem, as all these sources assume that there was no real change in behavior. It is understandable why Hashem would continue to punish the people. Our verses do not contradict those which promise that reconciliation brings penitence, that reconciliation comes after penitence, since all of those verses refer to a case in which there is complete and sincere repentance, unlike that found here. True repentance does indeed have the power to bring forgiveness in its wake. Mere words and insincere or partial repentance do not. Others solve our issue by reinterpreting not the apparent repentance, but rather the apparent punishment, suggesting that despite impressions, our verses do not really mean that after the people's repentance, they will continue to be punished. So, for example, according to Ibn Ezra, the words, speak of what Hashem had done in the past, not what he will do in the future. Hashem explains to the people that the reason he had walked contrary to them and had brought them to the land of their enemies was so that so that they would surrender their hearts to him and thereby make up for their iniquities. And this actually worked. Their past punishments did bring confession. And now, no more punishments are needing, are needed. This rereading, too, solves our theological problem as it suggests that the verses do not speak of new punishment at all. A third approach to our question does not attempt to reread our verses, but rather challenges the assumption that penitents must avert punishment, concluding that this is simply not always true. As such, Rav Avram Saba explains that despite the nation's repentance, Hashem continues to punish them even more harshly than before, because sometimes Atonement can come only via suffering. Repentance is not a cure-all potion preventing punishment. Sometimes, confession alone does not suffice to gain atonement. It is only through further suffering that one can achieve full penance for one's deeds. When one thinks about it, this understanding of the tshuva process might actually be the more just one. Why should saying sorry necessarily erase the need for punishment? Is it really fair that if one murders, that just because they say they're sorry and won't do it again, that they need not pay for their crimes? And so Rav Avram Saba explains that in our verses, Hashem tells the nation that even though they have already been exiled, and despite their confessions, Hashem will now make them wander to yet other countries where they will be subjected to even crueler treatment because their sins have still not been paid for despite their confession. Rav Saba explicitly reads these curses on the backdrop of his own time period, telling us how Hashem's words have come true in his own era. The Jews of Castile, who had lived in exile like royalty, were expelled to Portugal, where conditions immediately deteriorated, and from there, they were exiled again to surrounding Arab lands. These Jews were righteous people who had confessed their wrongdoing numerous times but were nevertheless punished for the previous offenses of others. In his reading of the verses, 
Rafsab attempts to offer subtle comfort to those of his generation, telling them that their suffering does not mean that they are still sinners, only that the crimes of previous, of previous generations have not yet been paid for. So to summarize the various approaches to our question, some suggest that repentance always brings forgiveness in its wake, necessitating them to reread our verses and suggest either that the repentance described is insufficient or that the punishment is only perceived. Others assert that actually no, repentance need not avert punishment. One might say sorry and even change one's ways, but still deserve punishment regardless. Let's now move into the last few verses of our chapter, those verses which everyone agrees finally turn to comfort. Verse 44. And yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Verse But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The chapter then ends in verse 46. These are the statutes, ordinances, and laws which Hashem made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hands of Moshe. In these closing verses of the chapter, Hashem promises that despite the people's sins, he will never break his covenant with the people and he will never totally reject and destroy the nation. Though the people might wander in exile, though they will be among their enemies, Hashem will always remember the covenant and ensure that the people survive. The Meshech Chachma, Rabbi Meir Simcha HaKoyen of Dvinsk, explains how this works. Not just how we survive physically in exile, but how we manage to survive as a Jewish nation, not assimilating totally among the foreigners with whom we are forced to live. He points out that from our very first exile, Israel's leaders take every possible step to protect against assimilation. Yaakov ensured that his children kept their unique language and clothing while in Egypt, and made sure that he be buried in Israel so all would know that it is Eretz Yisrael, not Egypt, where their true roots lie. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, these leaders also enacted laws to differentiate the nation from their surroundings. In the centuries of exile that followed the destruction of the Second Temple, Hashem employed other methods. Part of the nation's survival in exile was precisely due to their suffering there. The Meshachachma points to a pattern that one can see throughout the ages. We settle in a foreign country. At first, we are oppressed, but with time, we are somewhat accepted. And often, for several decades, or even a century or two, we might thrive. We cultivate Torah scholars, we set up schools of learning, and strong Jewish communities. But alongside these, there are those who, are not, who do not thrive Jewishly, but in secular society. Those who get so comfortable among their neighbors that there is fear of assimilation. This leads Hashem to invite some sort of upheaval, forcing another flight of the nation, another exile, where we move to a new land and start the process again. We are oppressed, but then slowly we grow, develop, and even make Torah giants. 
But at some point, the people again forsake the Torah, almost forget that we are foreigners in a foreign land. And so Hashem reminds us who we are by sending another upheaval, this time stronger than before. This is what Hashem means when He says, Yes, we might be rejected or abhorred, but only in order that we not be destroyed. Hashem's promise in our verse brings to mind a very famous quote by Mark Twain about the immortality of the Jew, which reads as follows. If the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of. But he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and its commercial importance is extravag as extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world in all the ages, and he has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but have burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Our verses provide the answer. We might be oppressed in every generation. We might be exiled from land to land, but we survive because Hashem promised, Lo ma'astim belo ga'altim l'chalotam l'hafer biti itam. Imir Hashem, in our next class, we'll turn to chapter 27, the final chapter of Sefer Vayikra.